Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, November is National Adoption Month, which can bring up conflicting emotions for adoptees, says writer Nicole Chung, in part because of simplistic narratives that paint adoption as an inherent good, that parents who adopt are saviors and adoptees are in need of being saved. Chung and fellow adoptee Tony Hines join us to talk about the impact those narratives can have and how to best represent and center the experiences of adoptees and their families, adoptive and birth families alike, this month and always. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. November is National Adoption Awareness Month, which was established in the 90s to boost adoptions from foster care, a fact I learned from a recent Atlantic piece featuring a conversation between adoptees Nicole Chung and Tony Hines. Both expressed complicated feelings about National Adoption Month in the piece, which is titled, What Adoption Salvation Narratives Get Wrong?, they join me now. Nicole Chung is the author of All You Can Ever Know and the forthcoming A Living Remedy, as well as a contributing writer to The Atlantic. Welcome to Forum, Nicole. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Tony Hines is also with us, a PhD candidate and training specialist in adoption and author of The Son with Two Moms. Tony, glad to have you with us, too. Thank you so much for having me. So, Nicole, I'll start with you. What thoughts or feelings can National Adoption Month bring up for you? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think that a lot of the um, a lot of the vocabulary around this month focuses on celebrating adoption. In the chat that Tony and I had for the Atlantic, he mentioned that um, you know the language that he remembers hearing and that you still see in many spaces is focused on the adoption as um, a net positive and the fact that. I think, Tony, you said something like the language you noticed was it's it's like a positive way to grow your family. And you made the great point that we often don't hear other ways of growing your family referred to in this way. But for me, what I tend to notice this month, you know, there are there are a lot of feel good stories, a lot of um, stories about parents who are adopting children, um, you know, whether that's out of foster care or, or other forms of adoption. And there just isn't as much focus, I think, on adoptee experiences or or on birth families. And I think if we're going to have this month, not that you can ever reduce an, this complicated topic to one month of conversation, but if we are going to have it, I think it is important to really be transparent about what adoption is and how it affects all members of the adoption um, triad. Yeah. How about for you, Tony? Is it similar for you or a little bit different in terms of National Adoption Awareness Month? It's similar and different. 
you know, the same things that Nicole described there about Adoption Month being described as a net positive, as this good way to grow your family without acknowledging the separation, the loss, the grief that comes for children who are separated from their birth families. That's frequently erased from National Adoption Month. But for me, honestly, as an adoptee, when I think about National Adoption Month and my thoughts about it, I actually had to think to myself, well, do I even think about it very often? (laughs) And the answer to that is no, actually. Now that I'm in the space and professionally doing this work in the field of adoption, I do think about it in terms of, okay, what can I do during National Adoption Month? That's writing a blog piece or having a conversation with Nicole or training parents on what adoption means. What can I do from the professional side of things? But from the personal side of things, I'm an adoptee every single month of the year. So having a National Adoption Awareness Month, while I feel it can be a good in terms of educating people about the holistic picture of adoption, for me personally as an adoptee, because I live and breathe it every day, it isn't something that I'm like, oh, yeah, it's November 1st now. I need to feel even more like an adoptee today than I did on October 31st. Right, right. So your personal experience, your personal story, what would you like to share about your own adoption, Tony? What is your adoption story? Sure. So I was adopted from Washington, D.C. in 1994, and I was adopted by two white lesbian women and I was adopted in what was an open adoption meaning that I had contact with my birth family and so I was around the age of five when I was adopted before that I had lived both in an orphanage and also with my birth mother and some friends of the family on and off for the first year of my life when I was about one year old one years old I went to an orphanage And when I was around three years old, I was taken in in relation to foster care by my two moms, the same two moms that adopted me. And after I was adopted, around three months later, the adoption was actually overturned by a panel of judges who had decided that a white same-sex-headed household wasn't the right household to raise a Black child in. And Mm -hmm. we found out later that the social worker in our case, who was my social worker, was actually working against our family because she didn't want to see a Black child placed with a white family. And perhaps she also didn't want to see a child placed with an LGBTQ-headed household as well. And so the adoption was appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, or rather the overturning was appealed up to the Supreme Court. It was knocked down to the lower courts who decided upon a joint custody agreement between my birth family and my adoptive family. But the result of that was that I still technically was no longer an adoptee. Technically I was a ward of the state who grew up with his two moms until I was 19 years old when I was formally adopted again at that particular time. But lots of intersectionality with regard to race, sexual orientation, birth family connection, that was inherent in my story. And so all of these were things that I conceptualized and thought about, you know, what does this all mean for me more and more as I got older? Yeah, such an incredible journey, the intersectionality you talk about, the the twists and turns, and what I imagine was a lot of 
of stress for everybody involved. Overall, though, if you had to say the way your adoption was communicated to you, like in the system's eyes, in the state's eyes, um, what, how would you sum it up, basically? Like by the judges who made the final determinations and so on. Confusing is the word that comes to mind. And I think that that's a word that frequently comes to mind for a lot of adoptees because there's such a lack of information that goes along with being adopted. You're not a lot of times given all of the same information that the courts have. So there was information that the court had about my birth family. I found out I had another sibling out there who is a sister of mine, whom the courts didn't tell me about, who my birth family didn't tell me about, who my adoptive family didn't really educate me about either. And I wasn't educated about, this is what this overturning of your adoption means from a legal sense. And I'm sure there was a sense of, frame of mind that, you know, he's too young to give him legalese. But as I got older, and this happens with other adoptive families too, there wasn't really space, it seemed like, to come back to these items of information that were still really important pieces that I would have loved to have had. You know, I would have loved to have known, for instance, earlier on that in my particular case, my birth sister, who's nine years older than me, wanted to adopt me. And doesn't mean that I necessarily think that I wanted to be adopted by her, but it would have been nice to to know that. Yeah. It would have been nice to know that I found this out later and spoke to Nicole about this, that my birth grandmother, who was filing really the lead challenge of that adoption, that it turned out that she is actually not my grandmother. It turned out that she was a friend of the family saying that she was my grandmother because she felt it would be easier to gain custody of me in that way. So none of these particular things, in addition to other things, were pieces of information that were given to me. And so it created a really confusing picture of what was going on and also what was going to happen next for my life. Well, Nicole, hearing Tony share his adoption story reminds me so much of what you have said, which is that the narratives leveraged to celebrate and promote adoption have not always left space for discussing its complexity, let alone a wide range of adoption and foster care experiences. And if anything, as as the title of your Atlantic piece suggested, we fall back on a salvation narrative. Um, I, I do also want to hear your adoption story, but wondering if you could just describe what you mean by the salvation narrative. What is it and how is it often delivered? You know, I think it, it, it manifests in a lot of different ways. And often, as especially as an adopted child who was a different race from my parents as well. And so it made us kind of hyper visible, especially in the predominantly white community where I grew up. You know, I would often encounter this sort of salvation bias in narratives around people's questions uh, to us as a family. And I don't remember how old I was the first time a complete stranger asked me, like, where did they get you out in public? But I must have been very, very young when this began to happen. And I remember that trying to offer up answers to sort of make people understand. And at the same time, feeling like this was an uncomfortable position to be in, especially at a young age. 
But along with the questions would come assumptions or different questions. Like, don't you feel lucky? Do you feel grateful? Sometimes people would say things like, you're so lucky that your family took you in, or you're lucky to be raised um, in a good Christian household or in a country that values girls and women. Um, These are kind of just like routine comments that I heard growing up. And, you know, no one... um, or, or comments like your parents are heroes or they're angels, you know, things like that, that really without using the word words, they saved you. I mean, that truly is the implication. Um, and so I, th- I think, you know, I don't think people understand really the the pressure that this can often put on adoptees. Um you know, particularly when we start hearing these sorts of comments and questions from a very young age, but it it doesn't leave a lot of room, uh, as Tony was also saying, for complications. Uh, it can be quite confusing when you do know little bits and pieces of your story and you know that it's more complex than, than people are assuming. Um, but I, I do remember feeling, especially when I was younger, that the easiest way to get people to stop asking questions or uh, you know, making intrusive comments was to kind of, I knew what they wanted to hear. I knew what would reassure them. And I got very used to offering up that narrative. It's sort mm-hmm. of taken many years to unlearn it again. We're talking with Nicole Chung, Tony Hines, adoptees, about the narratives that surround adoption and why it's important to complicate them. Uh, You could join the conversation, listeners, if you have had a similar experience, you've been told you're lucky to have been adopted, or a story about your adoption that you've come to question or just hasn't felt quite right, you can share it at 866-733-6786. You can post it on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the complexities of the adoption experience. On this National Adoption Awareness Month, which happens in November, we're talking with adoptee Nicole Chung, author of the memoir, All You Can Ever Know, and a contributing writer to The Atlantic and other publications. We're also talking with adoptee Tony Hines, author of The Son with Two Moms and a training specialist in adoption. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. You can post your thoughts or questions 
at forum, at KQED forum. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Have you been told an adoption story that you have come to question? How has your adoption been talked about in your family or by the people who are around you in your community? Nicole, what is your personal adoption story, the parts of it that you want to share? Thank you for asking. Um, I was born to Korean American immigrants, actually. So uh, they had moved to the United States from Korea just a couple of years before I was born. And I was the first person in that family born on American soil. Uh, I was also born severely premature. And uh, the doctors predicted just a number of different medical challenges. Um, And they told my parents I might never live independently. My birth parents were immigrants who were working 14 hours a day or more uh, at their small business. They had no health insurance at the time. Um, And so I know that that those were some of the reasons, not the only reasons, certainly, that contributed to their decision to place me for adoption. Um, The story I was told by my white adoptive parents growing up, and, and they had adopted me at the age of three months, basically, as soon as I could leave the NICU. Um, in Seattle, where I was born. But the story I was I was told by them was a little bit simpler. And it, it was really because the adoption was closed and we knew so little about my birth family. It was very much the classic narrative of your birth parents wanted to give you a better life. They thought this was the best thing for you. Um, and so and that was really what I was told growing up. And I wouldn't learn more about them or more about the truth of that story until I grew up and searched for them, actually, the the same at the same time I was expecting my own first child, which is what my first book is about. Um, and like since then, I've actually learned the story was was much more complicated than that. And like the child welfare system that I was also in was you know primarily focused on finding, of course, like a home for me, and on I think um, the adoption attorney was very focused on like serving my parents who had hired her. Um, But there wasn't really as much focus on my birth family. And there wasn't a lot of conversation about what was really going on in their family that might have made the adoption seem necessary. Um, So when I think about that, I often think about how, in a way, nobody was especially well served by that system, right? Not not my birth family, who was kind of left behind um, and relegated to the secondary status and, and not me or my adoptive parents who like they were, they actually asked, uh, at multiple points, social workers, the judge who finalized the adoption, you know, is her race relevant? Do we need to know anything in particular because we are white and we are going to be parenting this Asian child. And if anything, you know, the social workers and the judge were like surprised that my parents had asked. It was sort of the opposite experience of what Tony and, and his family has encountered. But um, the judge told them just assimilate her into your family and everything will be fine. So I think about that line all the time as well, because of course there was so much more information and education and support that my adoptive family could have been given at that point, not just around race, of course, but like many other things. Uh, but you know, at the time I was adopted for whatever reason, and it could have been partly because it was a private adoption, um, there just wasn't that support or that education. Hmm. Uh, well, we have listener Susan who writes in, I was never told that I was lucky to be adopted. That's because I was never told I was adopted. Everyone in mm-hmm. my family knew except me. And I didn't find out until a couple weeks before my mom died. Funny thing was, I knew something was off from the time I was a young child. 
I didn't look like anyone in my family. We didn't have the same medical issues, didn't think alike or have the same sense of humor. Finding out has caused me to feel estranged from my family. I feel like they were just people I grew up with. I feel massively betrayed. I found out I wasn't who I thought I was. That said, I had a very good childhood, was able to go to college, and things turned out well. So I was lucky in that regard. Susan, thanks for sharing, again, something that really does reflect the complexities of what gets communicated in adoption. Tony, one of the things that uh, Nicole was just bringing up is also just how things get communicated with regard to the importance of race and adopting someone, especially if you're a white family, a child of another race. And I think it was actually a stat I got from your piece Um, that you have written about why we shouldn't call adoptees lucky, where I think you said 70% of interracial adoptions are done by white parents. So it's fairly common, right? That's correct. And 70% for adoptions that are interracial placements in general, but the number jumps to over 80% if we think about international adoption. So over 80% of international interracial adoptions are white families adopting children from other countries than the United States. And the issue a lot of times is that parents feel that, well, if I adopt and I just love the child, right, it's kind of this love is enough approach that I'm loving all of who they are if I say that I love them, if I say that I'm attached to them. But what frequently happens is that adoptees that get older adoptees that are adults are telling us, you know, love wasn't enough for me. You know, I needed my racial identity to be honored within my household. I really wanted to talk about the racism that I was encountering in my school environment, in my peer environment, sometimes the racism that I was encountering within my family environment here. And I didn't feel comfortable speaking up or talking about that because I was raised in a colorblind household where race was de-emphasized. And so I talked to parents about the importance of not only talking about race, but also talking about the racism that their kids are likely to face and supportive strategies for their kids. But one of the most important things for parents to know is just that it's really important to be there for their children by telling them, you know, I can't make everything better in regard to face you facing racism, but I can tell you that I'm going to be here for you, that I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to honor your thoughts, feelings, opinions about these things. And that is another piece of loving the adoptee that is in that interracial household. It goes beyond kind of the love is enough approach. And in those types of interracial placements, We do, I don't want to say see more successful, but I do want to say that we see children who become adults who feel better about their racialized experience within their adoptive households. Hmm. Uh, Let me go to uh, caller Susan in San Jose. Hi, Susan. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. What would you like to share? I just want to thank uh, Ms. Chang for saying that she heard this narrative growing up that her parents were great and there's a special place for them and they're wonderful. I'm a foster child and I'm 50 and I am grateful for what my foster parents did. But to this day, I still hear that, that they're wonderful and they're great. And I was a foster child in a white home and I'm not white. 
And so everything that you guys are saying in all this time, thank you. I have never been feel, felt like I was alone until <clears throat> I always felt like I was alone. And now I don't. So thank you. Oh, Susan, that, that really means a lot. Um, I, Nicole, I don't know if you have a reaction to what Susan is saying, um, but oh, no, uh, please feel free. Just gratitude, Susan. Thank you so much. That that truly means a lot, and I'm I'm glad if you know this conversation has done that for you. For for what it's worth, if we don't have the same experience at all, of course. But um, I didn't really know fellow adoptees growing up, um, and I always felt like I was alone too. Um, I will say, like it's been only in my adult years that I've been able to like meet and talk and connect with adoptees and former former foster youth and just share experiences. And um, I've always found it like incredibly affirming. So I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to call in. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you again, Susan. And this salvation narrative that we were talking about, I'm curious, Nicole, how if you feel like it affected your ability to address racial biases or to communicate in any way if your family was falling short in meeting your needs with regard to race as well, since you also were adopted by a white family? Sure. I mean, it's a good question. I'll say like a lot of, a lot of that phrasing and a lot of that language, I simply wouldn't have had it when I was growing up in, uh, of course, like not a colorblind household, but one that sort of thought it was, um, and because my community was all white, I mean, truly, I was the only Korean I knew until college. Um, so it was a, a state of pretty total racial isolation in a lot of ways. I didn't really have the language for what I was and wasn't seeing or experiencing. Um, I did experience racism from a young age. I think by seven, eight, nine, I'd heard like every anti-Asian slur there was at school. Um, but I didn't even know really to call it racism at the time. Um, I had been taught like both by my parents and I think at school by white educators that racism was this thing of the past for the most part, that it was also always physically violent and I wasn't experiencing that. So therefore what I was experiencing wasn't racism. Um, and I remember distinctly like being unable to tell either my white teachers or my white parents what was happening. Um, they knew I think something was wrong and that I wasn't happy at school, but I just couldn't tell them. I felt ashamed. I felt like I didn't know what to call it. I um, I sort of felt like it was my fault. And I also didn't think really they would understand uh, just because, you know, I knew this was, this was, they were, what was being attacked was something about me, something that I couldn't change that was fundamental. And I knew it wasn't quite like anything like my white family would have encountered before. So I also clearly remember sort of wanting to protect them because they'd always told me it didn't matter what I looked like. My race did not matter. Like what mattered was the kind of person I was and how I treated others. And I felt as though, even as a child, I felt if I told them about what I was experiencing, like the bullying and the slurs, like I would be disabusing them of this illusion they had. Hmm. And I just did not know how to tell them they were wrong about the world, about like how I would experience it. Um, so I I was probably in my 20s before we really had that conversation. Wow. So yes, I think the salvation narratives to answer your question certainly played a role in that. Again, with the pressure they create, there's not a lot of space for anything that is more negative. There's not a lot of space to share if you're maybe the victim of like racial bullying or having feelings about growing up in racial isolation 
or just aren't sure like how to have a a positive, healthy identity development when you don't know or ever see anybody who looks like you. Um, but as a child, I wouldn't have really known how right. to express all of that to them. So in our case, those conversations did happen. And I'm, I'm grateful they did, but they happened much later, like when my childhood was was in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Tony, this idea of not creating much space, you've talked about how the salvation narrative sort of also makes you feel like you should feel feel grateful, right, for for them and and so awkward pushing against somebody that you're supposed to feel grateful toward all the time who who are just people, parents trying to do the best they can, but I'm sure making mistakes along the way. Um, do you want to share also your reflections on whether or not or or how that narrative has has challenged you at times in in challenging your own family's racial biases? Tony? I think I think for me, when I think about the grateful narrative in relation to my own story, I think about my family being a white adopted family who was more racially aware, you might say, than other white adopted families of black and brown children are. And so I had books about Jackie Robinson and Sojourner Truth in the house and my mom took me to an all-Black barbershop when I was growing up, and we went to cultural events, and race did come up in our household. So I think because those things were happening, especially as I got older and I heard the stories of other adoptees, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, my mom's and my mom, they don't do that or they don't do this. But as I began to think more deeply about some of those conversations around race that were still maybe uncomfortable, some of those pieces of aggression regarding race that I felt were problematic statements that were made. Those were times when I began to realize that the quote grateful narrative around how I was thinking about how my family was reacting to race, that I was challenging those narratives. But I also wanted to say that when it comes to grateful narratives in general in adoption, we usually often frequently paint adoptive parents as saviors of these, you know, woe begotten, forgotten children. People don't often think about, well, what does that mean for the other side of the coin? Well, if you're watching a movie and if one character is the hero, is the savior, then there has to be a villain. And often the villain in the story of adoption is the birth family. And so what I get, what Nicole gets is well, isn't it great that you were able to grow up with this family who gave you a good home and that you escaped the the terrible life that you would have had if you were raised by your birth family? And so that's what we're constantly challenging. We have to say to ourselves, well, what would my life have been like had I been raised by my birth family? In situations of abuse and neglect, we know that kids are frequently separated from homes for those reasons. And we do want our kids to be safe. And if that means separating them from abusive parents, then that needs to be done in certain cases. But we also know that there are plenty of other cases where those kids, instead of being adopted by another family entirely, might be able to be adopted by a relative in that same family. And we have no idea in many cases how kids would or would not have turned out if they grew up with their birth families. But yet when we talk about adoption, we act as though 
we need to have these kids adopted because we're, quote, saving them from these villains. No one really wants to say that word, but that's how we're casting birth families when it comes to these stories. And that gets more complex when you bring in race into it, because now if it's a white family adopting a black child like me, now the, quote, villain that I'm talking about that's the birth family is the family of color, and the white family is the savior family, is the family that are the heroes of the story, which goes back to these narratives, not only as it relates to adoption, but when we think about discussions of race in the United States, about how we've talked about race in this country as a whole. And so adoption becomes a microcosm of that larger discussion. And that needs to continuously be challenged. And so as I got older, those are some of the things that were coming into play about how I was thinking about how my family existed within this particular structure. Yeah. Again, Tony Hines is a PhD candidate and training specialist in adoption. Nicole Chung is a writer, journalist, author of the memoir, All You Can Ever Know, has a forthcoming memoir, A Living Remedy. You, our listeners, are sharing your stories, reflections, and questions for our guests. You can email them, forum at kqed.org, post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. Paz writes, I'm a transracial adoptee and also a therapist that works with other transracial adoptees. What I want to highlight is just how deep and profound the separation wound really is. It impacts every aspect of life and our relationships and every aspect of ourselves, the body, heart, mind, and spirit. This is a grief that has to be acknowledged, and this wound can be so difficult to heal, and in honesty, sometimes it doesn't. The truth is, we need to know who we are and where we come from. I pray for all adoptees healing and for a world that values family preservation before family separation. We'll have more reflections from you, our listeners, and from our guests after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the narratives around adoption and hearing stories from adoptees that often complicate those narratives. Nicole Chung is an adoptee, author of the memoir All You Can Ever Know, and a contributing writer to The Atlantic. 
Tony Hines is an adoptee, author of The Son with Two Moms, a PhD candidate and training specialist in adoption. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786. Let me go to Kara in Berkeley. Hi, Kara. Hi. Kara, uh, I think your connection may be going in and out. We'll try to reconnect with you in just a second. Let me go to Sophie in Florida. Hi, Sophie. You're on. Hi there. I grew up in, in Berkeley in the Bay Area. Um, I was adopted in a, a private adoption at birth. Um, I'm turning 32 this year, and I have been starting to feel like I maybe need to reach out to my birth mother to let her know that I landed okay. Um, mm. the, it's a bit of a complication. I'm the product of, of a date rape incident, so she doesn't know who my dad was, and she was unable to get an abortion due to her religious beliefs. Um, so kind of a twofold question. How do I tackle this with my adoptive parents? Because I don't want them to feel like, well, you're not good enough. I need to find her. So how can I address that in a way that they'll be, they won't feel, you know, upset or we didn't do enough kind of in that way. Um, and then the other thing I'm wondering is, you know, the, the, she did contact my parents as they're both lawyers trying to get some legal help a few years ago. I guess she's in quite an abusive relationship um, I had asked if I could do 23andMe to kind of get to the bottom of what my racial identity is. I'm sort of white passing, but my mom asked me not to do 23andMe due to the fact that her current husband is in law enforcement and she was worried that he might, you know, do something untoward me uh, in a way. So it's a little complicated, but just wondering uh, some thoughts on that from your guests. Well, Sophie, thank you for sharing that story and the complications that you're experiencing underscore what we are talking about. Nicole, I don't know if you have any advice for, for Sophie around reaching out to her birth mother. Sure. Um, I, I'm happy to try to speak to that. I, I did undergo um, a search for my, my birth parents, as I mentioned, um, after an entirely closed adoption. It does vary a lot um, you know, from state to state. It can sometimes even be different depending on like what decade, what time period we're talking about. But um, so first, firstly, I'll just say and it sounds like you already have looked into this a bit, but just make sure that you know um, kind of what the the procedures are, what the laws are where you live. Um, in my case, it was an adoption through Washington State and I was required uh, due to the time that I searched and the time when I was born uh, to go through a third party, like a, what was called a confidential intermediary Um and, and so uh, I wrote a letter that she forwarded to my birth parents, and then they wrote back through her. And then uh, we shared contact information by mutual consent at that point. Um, but I think, you know, to your, to your question, which is really about how to talk about it with your adoptive family, it, it is hard because, of course, everybody's relationship with their parents uh, and their adoptive families is, is it's your own. And it, do it doesn't look like mine or anyone else's. Um, I, I remember sharing like your apprehension about about that conversation with my adoptive family when I was actually like making up my mind. Um, I think it was helpful for me to do that on my own. I, I didn't want their voices or frankly, anybody else's voices in my head um, when I was deciding whether or not to go ahead and move forward to try. Um, I just knew that I needed to make that decision for myself because it was so much about what I wanted. And of course, if I found them, I knew it would be about what they wanted too, but I just felt like I needed to make that call on my own. Um, 
after doing so, I think it's really important for adoptees undergoing a search to just make sure that you have your support system lined up. And for some of us, that includes our adoptive families. And for many of us, it includes partners, friends, um, you know, colleagues, other people we can be honest and real with while we're going through it because it tends to be a very you know, complicated and emotional process in the best of circumstances. Um, in case it's helpful, I remember making it really clear to my adoptive parents, like, you know, of course, I love you and I consider myself your child. And I, I want to go back to something Tony said quickly, which is just yeah. that we don't know what our lives would have been like if we hadn't been adopted. And I actually think that's a really important thing if you feel comfortable to kind of share with your adoptive parents. It's because for many of us, it's one possible reason why we search. Like we can love our adoptive families um, and be glad to have them and still have questions and still want to know more. Um, you know, just like we can have, we can love our families and have very complicated feelings about being adopted. Um, and so I think that's always worth communicating. Um, and of course, I don't know how you've already communicated with your adoptive family about your adoption, but if you haven't already really acknowledged and shared all of like whatever complicated feelings or thoughts you have about it, like that's also maybe a place to start if they can understand and empathize with your perspective there it might like this, your, your reason for searching for more information might make more sense to them. Well, thanks again, Sophie, for the call. I believe we do have Kara back. Kara, are you with us? You bet. Right. Sorry about that. You're on. Go right ahead. Uh, great. So what I, what I was trying to say, so I, I am a transracial adoptive parent. I want to talk about that um, and this wonderful organization that we're a part of called PACT. Um, but I do want to say prior to that, um, I did a lot of work in Africa. I, I was a teacher and did a lot of work volunteering in a lot of countries. Um, and I did experience, unfortunately, a tremendous amount of uh, saviorism. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I hate to say it, but a lot of it was missionary work that I saw where there was a, a significant amount of, I am a white person, I will save you from this calamity um, where you're living. And it was heartbreaking very heartbreaking. Um, but um, I personally um, adopted my son after a lot of losses um, and uh, was always very clear I wanted to adopt um, a child of either um, African-American descent um, or a mix thereof. And my son has always known that he is adopted and that you know, we are white and that he is not. And we are part of this amazing uh, organization called PACT, P-A-C-T. I think they're based in Emeryville. And um, what's wonderful, we, we went to a camp that they offered. Um, and it was very hard uh, for us parents, uh, brilliant for the children, because they got to see um, families that look just like them. And we did a lot of unpacking of our own internalized racism, um, a tremendous amount of work looking at the birth parents and finding out that it's systemic. That, you know, often nine times out of ten, they're forced to give up their children because of the system, yeah. you know, whether it's extreme poverty or domestic violence, etc. And I just, as a parent now, I feel so much more... Um, um, able to answer my my child's questions and he started dealing with racism at two and a half and he and we're in berkeley so yeah. just 
very thankful that PACT exists and wanted to let you guys know about that. Well, well, Kara, thank you for letting us know about it, but also for, for sharing your story. Tony, you do work with adoption support, and I am, and I understand lead trainings on race and adoption, and I'm wondering what you find often is most needed for families to be able to, in a supportive and adoptee-centered way, try to address what may come up for them. Right. And I want to thank Kara again for calling in. I also would invite a personal plug for PACT. I've worked with that organization several different summers at their camp and have also found it to be a great resource for adoptive families. So thank you so much for sharing that. And what I would say for families is Nicole mentioned this earlier, and we had an earlier caller who also mentioned this first and foremost, acknowledging that how you as adoptive parents or how you just in general feel about adoption, that that's going to differ from how the adoptee is going to feel about being adopted. The adoptee is going to have good feelings, bad feelings, indifferent feelings about being adopted, but usually they are going to feel feelings of separation and loss because they have experienced a separation and a loss and adoption starts with loss. And so that's the first thing that we talk to adoptive parents about acknowledging. And when adoptive parents can acknowledge, okay, this adoption started with the loss of their birth family. How can we support them? How can we support them given that loss? Well, that means supporting birth family connection. It doesn't necessarily have to mean physical in-person connection, but it does mean how can we support them being able to feel like they can talk about how they're feeling about their birth family, how they're feeling about their racial identity, how they're feeling about feelings of difference related to being an adoptee and getting those uncomfortable questions in their school environment. And the other thing that I talk to parents about is acknowledging that, you know, this adoption thing is a lifelong journey and it's going to be hard not only when the child enters that household, but it's going to continue at different points to be hard throughout that child's social, emotional, cognitive development. As they get older, they're learning more and more about critical thinking and what it it means to be an adoptee, what it means to have different personality traits from their adoptive parents. And they're asking themselves more questions about, you know, who am I? Where did I come from? Why was I adopted? Am I the reject? Am I the reason that I was rejected by not only my family, but the system. And that makes me feel vulnerable inside. And I don't feel like I can talk to anyone about it because I've been told that I should just be grateful or that I'm so lucky to be adopted. So for that reason, we really emphasize that communication is important, yes, but adoption competent therapy for families is can be a really great resource. And so as an adoptee, I lost one of my adoptive moms when I was 12 years old, and I went to a grief counselor after that point in time. The grief counselor and I never talked about adoption. It never came up. We talked about the loss of my mom, but we didn't talk about how that was a compounding loss for me, that I had been separated from my birth family and experienced that loss. And now I was experiencing the loss of someone in my second family and the family that I called home as well and how difficult both of those losses were given my situation as an adoptee. 
And there's so much more that can be said, but, and Nicole has said this on a number of occasions, listening to the voices of adult adoptees is paramount in understanding more about the lived experiences of adoptees. Adoptees are the experts on their own journeys and have given us the most information about what this thing called adoption means across racial lines, across economic lines. And so I would invite all of our listeners to continue reading stories that Nicole writes, to continue listening into um, sessions like this, to continue attending camps like PAC camp, so we can listen to the adult voices of adoptees as well. Tony Hines uh, is PhD candidate and training specialist in adoption and author of the memoir, The Son with Two Moms. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Nicole Chung is author of the memoir, All You Can Ever Know, and the forthcoming, A Living Remedy. Let me read a few more reflections we're getting from listeners. Chad tweets, I'm an adult twin adoptee. My twin brother and I grew up together. I'm white, as are my adoptive parents. I found my birth mother when I was 30, and she found my father. I was lucky. My birth parents were open to meeting. They hadn't spoken for 30 years, then got married. It was an astonishing experience. The same idea that adoptive parents are heroes and birth parents are villains persisted in the culture I grew up in. I've had an amazing relationship with all my parents, and I desperately needed to find my birth parents. Tony writes, I am lucky to be adopted. I'm a mixed-race child born in a country recovering from war, and it did not want children like me. It's complicated and problematic, but I'm grateful to be in a place where the opportunity to work on complications and problems exists, and the alternative, if the narrative is true, was certainly grim. Noel tweets, I'm wondering if the, quote, growing your family narrative is becoming prominent in the abortion ban states and thoughts about how abortion bans are changing the narrative. Nicole, I think you have addressed this before. I mean, we're talking about November as Adoption Awareness Month and how even that is a very simplistic narrative. But I think you've also challenged the response from people who are anti-abortion about just adopt. Do you have thoughts on what Nicole, uh, Noel was asking? I mean, I think any narrative, I I automatically distrust any adoption narrative that is that simplistic, I will say. Um, You know, I think it's important to say this over and over, and and Tony mentioned it before, like even in the very best of circumstances, adoption begins with loss. Um, It begins with separation. And this is really a type of grief and loss that can reverberate through like adoptees' lives, through birth parents' lives. Adoption is not is not typically seen um, as like an alternative, uh, like pregnancy option. It is primarily a parenting choice. Sociologist Gretchen Sisson has pointed out, uh, she does a lot of research on pregnancy and adoption decision-making. She has said most pregnant women aren't weighing abortion and adoption as if they're equally likely or substitutes for each other. but, you know, but I also think, you know, we shouldn't pretend that adoption is so simple or straightforward. It is not the right choice for every pregnant person who may not uh, want to or be able to parent. And I personally, as an adoptee, don't think it's a wonderful outcome if more people uh, who wouldn't otherwise want to relinquish a child for adoption or don't think it's a good decision for them do so because they lack other safe options. So, I mean, that's my take. I, I don't know if Tony has more he'd like to add. Yeah, Tony, is there anything you'd like to add? No, actually, I thought Nicole summed that up very well. 
Nicole, I wanted to ask you about something um, that came up earlier, too, with the listener that you also talked about, which is just how isolated you were from other adoptees, and particularly other Korean-American adoptees and so on. Can you just describe how it felt or what that experience of finding this community of other adoptees has been like for you and, and what it has what it has given you and, and caused you to think about that you'd like to leave our listeners with? My life has changed entirely because of my connection with fellow adoptees. Um, you know, I didn't really get to know fellow adoptees until I was an adult, as I mentioned. And one of the very first things that they did uh, individually and collectively was challenge my um, my assumptions. And a lot of the narratives I'd been kind of spoon fed as a child that I hadn't been ready to let go of because they were comforting because I worried it would be a betrayal of my adoptive family um, because there was always this pressure on me as an adoptee, especially a, a transracial adoptee. Um, I think if I hadn't been lucky enough to come into contact with with so many other adoptees, you know, I might still in some way be stuck in those narratives. Um, it was really you know, partly because of their camaraderie and community and encouragement that I started to feel brave enough to question. I think that their support is one reason I was able to search for my birth family. Um, and and none of that was easy. None of it was simple. And I, I, you will never meet a group of adoptees that agrees on absolutely everything. I mean, we're not a monolith. I want to be clear. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I have seen I've seen so much like community really grow as a result of those connections. And I think it's like what a caller was saying earlier about how like you can feel less alone when you hear from people who've gone through similar things. It's always just a very powerful reminder to me that, yes, our stories are unique. None of us had the same upbringings or we don't have the same families, but we aren't alone. And that will always be very powerful to me. Yeah, I'll read this quick comment actually from Lauren, a birth mom, who writes, I'm a birth mom, it's complex and invisible. It's a complex and invisible identity. I have a photo of myself on the day my son was born with him in my arms, and I'm beaming at him smiling with all my heart. I gave my child up for what I believe to be the most solid and selfless reasons believing myself an unfit mother. It was a formal closed adoption. But when he was 11, I was invited to meet my son and his adopted family welcomed me fully into their lives. I've been a part of his life since. For me, I lost my beloved baby and the whole trajectory of my life and motherhood was interrupted. I've lived with a paradox of grief and joy for 25 years. Nicole, Tony, thank you for sharing the paradoxes and complications. And thank you listeners for listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.